Today's episode of the EdCurition podcast is sponsored by Education Galaxy. The mid-continent research for education and learning found that schools using Education Galaxy showed a substantial increase in state test scores between third and fourth grade. User schools grew 19.71 points higher than non-user schools in math and grew 8.33 points higher in reading. Schools that integrated Education Galaxy into their classrooms averaged a six-point increase in student performance on state assessments. If you're looking for an easy-to-integrate and fun solution to increasing test scores, find Education Galaxy at edcuration.com. You're listening to the EdCuration Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. I've had at least 15 students who have increased more than four grade levels. We used theater as a tool to make great human beings. My expectations are high for all of them. One of the things that I really love about teaching is the fact that every day is sort of unique and different and strange. Our guest today, Dr. Ruth Gotian, has spent years getting to know innovators, astronauts, Olympic champions, and Nobel Prize winners. She is an expert in mentoring and leadership development and is a contributor to Forbes and Psychology Today, where she writes about optimizing success. Her new book, The Success Factor, reveals the common characteristics of high achievers and offers a blueprint for how we can all become more successful and how we as educators can foster these characteristics in our students. Dr. Gotian is the Chief Learning Officer and Assistant Professor of Education at Weill Cornell Medicine, former Assistant Dean for Mentoring, and Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy. And I wanted to know what led her to focus her research on this specific topic. Why am I obsessed with success? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's word it that way. You know, I I always grew up thinking success was for other people, and it was not attainable by the rest of us mere mortals. But based on the environment of where I was working and what I was doing, I quickly realized that it is attainable, just most of us don't know how to reach it. So at the age of 43, I decided while working full-time, I was going to go back to school and really take a deep dive into understanding success, understanding adult learners, understanding leadership. And I went out to study the most successful physician scientists of our generation. Those are people who have the MD and they do research. And I found out that they all have the same four elements in common. And then after that, I decided I need to keep going. I need to see if the same four things I found in physician scientists could be found in other people. So I um, I had Nobel Prize winners and astronauts and Olympic champions and senior government officials and uh, Fortune 500 CEOs, you name it, I interviewed them. And I found out they all have the same four things in common. And if that's the case, these are learnable skills. And if they're learnable skills, I'm an adult educator. I can teach it to you. So I wrote the book, The Success Factor. I go around teaching it. I write about it. I talk about it to anybody who will listen, anybody who wants to be successful, because I really believe that nobody wakes up in the morning aiming to be average. So I'm here to change it. 
So this is so exciting. And I don't even know what to ask first. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to read your book. And I think what you said at the beginning that you thought that these were kind of people who were a little bit divine and walked just above the ground. And that's not, that was not available to you. I think a lot of us feel like that. Yeah. And in a way we feel like that because it lets us off the hook, right? Mm, yes. Because we think, well, that's, that's not a height that I can reach. And so I'm not going to try, mm-hmm. but you're telling us that those things are learnable how quickly in the process of interviewing all of these different people did the pattern start to emerge of four things? Yeah, it, it, it was very quick. Really? It started with the physician scientists where I quickly saw it within dozens. And you have to keep going when you do research, right? You have to just keep it going. But it became so apparent I told them, I said, I'm not interested in what I can Google about you. I don't, I don't need to talk to you for that. I want it. I'm more interested in what it took to get there. And as they start talking about it, literally my notes have things bolded, right? The four elements as they're talking, I'm like, you know, I, it just fit into these neat little squares for me because once I saw it, it was like neon colors. I couldn't unsee it anymore. So people ask me, well, what is that like? And I said, have you ever seen um, The Queen's Gambit, which was something you know, everyone watched on Netflix? And you remember she was lying in bed and she could see all these chest moves on the ceiling. That, without taking any medicine, <laughs> right? That's what it was like for me is that I was able to see these things and it was so clear. And then once I figured out the four elements, I needed to figure out a way to teach people how they can implement it in their life immediately, mm-hmm. not one day but make today day one. Yeah. I ha- that's what I had to do. And that was the goal of the success factor is really to give people tools that they can use to improve their own success immediately. And, you know, you and I, we're different. What works for you may not work for me. And what works for me today may not work for me a year from now. Mm-hmm. So I needed to have options for adults. Adults yeah. like options. We like the yeah. freedom of choice. So every time I talked about one of the four elements, I would also talk about all these different ways that you can implement it in your own life so that you can start improving your success today. And it becomes something you can do today, not one day, not for other people today. So I know that every listener right now is just dying for me to say, what are they? What are the four things? But before I ask that, I would love for you to say a little bit about how you're defining success. Yeah. So that was a whole other dissertation in and of itself, right? And one of the things that I quickly realized was that the definition of success changes based on who you ask. And it's actually different based on rank, based on gender, based on ethnicity, based on industry. And the goalposts are always moving. So success is a moving target, but that's actually helpful knowing you're never going to reach it. There's always more you can do. And if you have that mindset, you are not going to burn out because there's always something bigger that you can do. But the, what I used as a framework when I, when I um, reached out to these people was 
they had to move their field forward in some way. These people were not about status quo. They were about pushing the envelope and moving it forward. That was step one. Step two, they have to pay it forward and pay it back in some way. And some of them help by mentoring other people by one-on-one. Some develop big groups or programs, but in some way they were actually paying it forward. It was never just about them and just about their prize. Mm -hmm. So those are the two important things. If you want to be successful, push the envelope, get people to think differently, move things forward, but also as you're moving up in the world, bring other people up with you. Yeah, absolutely. Which I love that you're saying that because in many ways, every good teacher wants to do those two things. Yeah. Yep. Success looks and is defined a little bit differently, but the but the commonalities of the four characteristics tended yep. to be the same for everybody. And why did you discover during your research why some people thrive and others don't? Because I think this yeah. is what we all wonder. So it starts with the first element, which is the people who are so successful, they have found their passion, their purpose, what they were put on this earth to do. They cannot see themselves doing anything else. They have gotten in touch with their why. They know their why, why they are doing it. And if you do that, that'll get you through those tough days, those really challenging times. These are people, they would do it for free if they could. And they understand that there's a difference between being good at something and enjoying something. Not quite the same, right? So these are people who have found what we call intrinsic motivation. It comes from within. They have a fire in their belly, right? So what happens is when I ran the MD-PhD program and and every so often a student would come, I'm demoralized, nothing's working, my research isn't working, I think I'm going to drop out. I would literally pull out their essay from their application that says, why do you want to be a physician scientist? I was reminding them of their why. Okay. Now, this is different from extrinsic motivation. If your motivation is the promotion, the new title, the diploma, the trophy, the certificate, the award, you're not going to succeed. And when things get difficult, you will actually fail out or burn out. Because you don't have that internal fire to keep you going. So you need to tap into your intrinsic motivation. If you're only tapped into your extrinsic motivation, you're constantly being judged by others. Okay. Who wants to be judged by others all the time? Yeah. And you're saying that this can be learned. So some, it's not that some people just have this intrinsic motivation and others don't. Where does it come from? You have to learn how to tap into it and how to find it. And when I actually work with people, I take them through what I call a passion audit to figure out the difference between what you're good at, what you don't enjoy doing, what you're good at, but you don't enjoy doing, what you don't, what you're not good at, and what you would do for free if you could. You can find a passion audit and download it for free on Ruth's website. Both website and passion audit are linked in the episode notes. You're welcome. I knew you were wondering. Because once you're able to do that, that is the first step. Once you have that secure, the rest will, it'll just flow. And that is number one. That's number number one one of the four principles, finding your 
passion, I guess. Tapping into your intrinsic motivation. That's right. Can we move through them? Because in your your book gives people what you call a blueprint. Yeah. These things. So I'm guessing that these exercises that you do with people in your workshops are also available in your book. There's a version of the passion audit that's in there, the goal audit, all of these these different things are in there. And the book, The Success Factor, actually has stories of some of these incredible extreme high achievers to underscore all of these pillars. Okay. All right. So it's not just things I'm making up. You'll actually hear the way people like NBA champion Steve Kerr does it, or Olympic gold medalist Apollo Anton Ono, or from the NIH, Dr. Tony Fauci, you will hear how all of these people are doing it. Okay. So we talked about intrinsic motivation, number one. Yeah. Give us ready for number two. two. We can hardly wait. Okay. When you have found what you love doing, you are going to outwork everybody. You have the passion and now you have the work ethic, the perseverance, the resilience, the grit, whatever word you want to use to describe it. When you are working on what you love doing, time melts away. You are going to work. You're not hungry. You're not tired. You don't need to go to the bathroom. Your muscles don't ache. You are in what we call a state of flow. And you are going to work until it's perfect or your version of perfect for today, right? So that's that's the second one. The third one, the third element is no matter how successful you are, you never forget your basics. You have a strong foundation and you are constantly reinforcing that foundation. So for example, think of any basketball star, right? We heard Kobe Bryant would be at the gym doing his layups and doing his warmups before the sun rose. Mm -hmm. Same exact thing you would see in any junior high gym, same exact exercises. Kobe Bryant had better sneakers and better equipment, but it's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing if you're a scientist. It's the same thing if you're a politician. Neil Katyal, he's arguing his 45th case before the Supreme Court now. He uses the same strategies he used in case number one. He does moot courts. He has a binder with all possible questions he could be asked. He talks to his kids the night before to explain the case in the simplest terms. He did that at case one. And he's doing that with case 45 and every case in between. Strong foundation that's constantly being reinforced. What you just said is so key because we think that we outgrow those. We think that we move beyond doing scales. Never. Yeah, And we never do move beyond doing scales. Never. And I even think in terms of, of our audience, which are educators and this move toward, you know, uh, instructional coaching and how everybody who is at the prime of their performance, it, they have a coach that yeah. keeps reminding them of what you just said, right? That's right. Speaking to the things that work, continuing to refine their technique. You never outgrow that stuff. You have to go back to your foundation. Always. Always. All right. Number four. No matter how brilliant you are and how successful you are, you don't stop learning. You never stop learning. And that's what made these people so successful because they knew there was always more to learn. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Cuban, they're reading three to eight hours a day. It's not reading that made them billionaires. It's being open to new knowledge. 
So they read for many hours a day. But for the the rest of us who either don't have all those hours or don't enjoy reading, there are other ways that you can learn new things. So I love reading. I read 70 to 100 books a year. So to me, that sounds like heaven. But you can read books. You can read articles. You can read blogs. You can listen to podcasts. Hopefully, I'm, I'm dropping some useful information here. You can watch YouTube videos. You can talk to other people. All of the extreme high achievers surrounded themselves with a team of mentors, mm-hmm. people who believed in them more than they believed in themselves. It's so good on um, the heels of number three, which is never abandon your basics. That's right. Because it's almost a but, right? But always be open to new learning. That's right. And be open to adjusting the way you do things and be open to expanding your approaches and all of those always. things. Always. Always. So I'm curious because we'd all like to think that that privilege and opportunity play a huge role, but mm-hmm. you did not mention those as one of the pillars. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious in your research, what role did money, opportunity, and privilege play for optimal achievers? Does it have any role? Some of these people certainly grew up with a lot of opportunities and a lot of privilege. But I also interviewed early on a former Surgeon General of the United States who grew up in the segregated South and would have to learn by reading books that somebody gave him while he was sitting on the back of the bus. He became the Surgeon General of the United States. And there are many, many, many stories like that. But I think what has helped all of these people more than anything was that they used these four pillars, they were constantly curious, and they took advantage of every opportunity that lay before them. Every opportunity to explore something, to meet someone, to talk to someone. And at the end of the day, they feared not trying more than they feared failing. Yeah. So you wrote about that in your article. That was actually, I think, the title of your article in Psychology Today. That kind of curiosity, can that be instilled? Can it be taught? I think when you have found your passion and purpose, going back to that intrinsic motivation, you need to learn everything you can about it. And that goes to that second element. And when you have found that you're going to try these new things, you can't not do it. You just can't. You can't help yourself. And I think That's why having that first element is so important. You can't stop yourself from doing it. Yeah. So it's, it all hinges on number one. Everything's on number one, but you have to do all four simultaneously. So in thinking about how to tackle this, I'm reminded of Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird. If you're listening and you're unfamiliar with the writings of Anne Lamott, I'm so sorry, and please do something to remedy that situation immediately. But more to the point, the title of her book, Bird by Bird, Instructions on Writing and Life, is derived from the story of her school-age brother, who was despairing about a project on birds that he had waited until the night before it was due to begin writing. And Lamott's father sat down at the table, put his arm around her brother, and said, Bird by bird, buddy just take it bird by bird. You talk about the same thing, this idea of breaking down projects into small challenges and manageable parts. So can you give us a picture 
of that. Explain how you do that when you start something new and how it might be a strategy that we could use with our students. Absolutely. I tell this with anyone who has a goal that they wish to achieve. Thinking of the big goal, it's just too big. It's too massive. And we say one day we're going to do it. So what I do is I take that big goal and I break it down into the smallest chunks I can. I've seen this in the classroom repeatedly. We have a paper due in three weeks. We have to reverse engineer that entire path. What do you need to do and by when, right? So as soon as you can break things up into small chunks and start looking at what are the things I can control? What are the things that I can't control? And really focus on those and then give yourselves deadlines for everything. And every time you meet a small deadline, I don't care how small it is, a a small achievement, you need to reward yourself. What are some of the rewards that you use for yourself? So um, I I shared the story, which is actually quite funny. For anyone who's done a qualitative dissertation, it's hundreds of pages. It's like a book. Mm-hmm. And there's chapters and then there's subheadings within each chapter. And anytime I finished a subheading, I would reward myself with a manicure. Mm-hmm. And I laughed that I had the best looking hands of any graduate student because I wouldn't get up before that section was done because I knew as soon as that section was done, I could go get a manicure. Well, and then you're excited to write your next section because your nails look so pretty on the keys. That's right. There you go. (laughs) Speaking of motivation for tackling hard tasks, no one loves standardized tests, but our sponsor today can help you motivate students through fun, gamified learning. Hi, everyone. This is Jeremy Verrett. I am the founder and CEO of Education Galaxy. I founded Education Galaxy about eight years ago with the idea that when students are engaged, their capacity for learning is greatly increased. And that's why Education Galaxy is now the most engaging and fun platform on the market for students while ensuring it is highly effective in the classroom being built directly to state standards to help students prepare for state tests. You can learn more about Education Galaxy at edcuration.com. I'm wondering about personality. And you interviewed so many different people. Is there a personality type? Because we tend to think of high achievers as type A people, like extremely driven, take no prisoners kind of people. But you talk about killing our egos in order to reach our vision, which kind of is counterintuitive. Yeah. So it's counterintuitive to what we think of as a high achiever. One of the things that really impressed me so much was that these extreme high achievers were incredibly humble. And it really surprised me. So the Olympians who I interviewed, only two of them had their medals on display. Only two. Because I always asked them, I said, can you show me your medal? And one had it in a box under the bed. Several had it in brown paper bags in their nightstand or their sock drawer. Really? Uh, One had it in a safe. One, Scott Hamilton gave them all away. Wow. Like just gave them away? To the Hall of Fame, to the figure skating Hall of Fame. Okay. Um, he, he was the, the first American in many years, I think in like 24 years, uh, gold medalist in figure skating in 1984, if I remember correctly. Um, 
it's ne- it was never about the metal. Right. It was never about the metal. And they say to me repeatedly that the Nobel, the, the Olympic gold medal, it is one chapter in their life. It is not the entire story. And there was always more to do. I'm always curious about that because you see these little gymnasts who are 15. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. They have achieved the height of what yeah. you can achieve as an athlete on this planet. Yeah. Where do you go from there when you're exactly. 15 years old? Yeah, exactly. What do you do next? That's yeah. right. And that's why these people are the ones who have, who I consider these extreme high achievers. There was always something more for them to do. And again, that medal was just one stop on their road to success. What do you do when you work with people or individuals or organizations to help them level up that we as educators could learn from? I think really getting people to tap in to their intrinsic motivation is so critical. And I think if we can do that with students, if we can teach people how to do that, they will figure out what it is that they love to do. So if you love tinkering, if you love engineering, well, let's find ways for you to get exposure to that and exposure to people who are working in that. Because once you start getting exposure to people, because originally you don't know what you don't know. But if you can get exposure to these people in some ways and they can start tickling your mind a little bit with things that you can start considering, there's no limit to what you can do because now you're curious. Here's where the work ethic and perseverance come in, mm-hmm. right? And then yeah. the third pillar and the fourth pillar. So it's just, it's, it's a cycle, but we have to figure out and we have to help people in the classroom figure out what it is that they love to do. So critical. And it seems like we have to let go of a lot of things. So this Mm -hmm. idea of needing to cover a certain amount of material or stick to our curriculum versus getting to know our students and letting some of their curiosity lead. So important. So important. And we see it all the time, right? In the music class, right? There are certain people who are going through the motions, but you can see that they're really torturing themselves. Yeah. And there are other people who just, it's an extension of their hand. Mm-hmm. They love it. And every chance they get, they're picking up their musical instrument. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a difference. When you um, speak to groups, because you speak to groups of teachers and high school mm-hmm. students, what is your message? I Look, I tell people that everyone has, especially at that age, a prescribed metric of what you should be doing. But I ask them, what is it you would love to do? What is the problem that you're trying to solve? What keeps you up at night? What would wake you up in the morning, right? With a bounce in yourself. What are those things? Let's figure out what that is and let's figure out how we can help you get there. And you know, when people love what they're doing, if we can find out what they love doing, You know, you start reading a book, you want to read the the books that are the references in the book because you're so into this. That's what we need to find and help people get that feeling because once you get it, it is so good. Yeah. Do you believe, Ruth, that everybody has that? Because I feel like some people have become so disconnected from it that they'd have to search really hard to find their why. Yeah. I think we've all experienced that. And I think we've all experienced that lately. Um, but I think people are hungry to figure it out because people really want 
they want more than a job. Yeah. They want to make an impact. It's moving something forward. And you know that you can make a change in this world. And I'm thinking of those teachers out there who that student who is connected to their why is often the student who is the pain yes. in the backside because yes. they're not willing to jump through hoops that feel right. meaningless to them because they're That's connected right. to something bigger. And they're not always the kid that we think of as the high achiever. That's right. Maybe they're not turning in the A papers. That's right. That's right. But imagine if we found a student who loves tinkering and doing that engineering type work, for example, Mm -hmm. and we can somehow find a way for them to help in a, you know, if we have a maker space, imagine how that would open up their world. Yeah. They have a world that's bigger outside our four walls and we just need to give them access to it. Yeah. Do you, I'm wondering if you have some favorite stories from people that you interviewed for the book? I have so many. Um, You know, it's really interesting because I got to talk to people from so many different fields, but there's, um, there's an astronaut, Dr. Peggy Whitson. She wanted to be an astronaut and she tried for 10 years. And for 10 years, she was not accepted for 10 years, but she didn't give up. She had that perseverance, right? And she eventually became the first female commander of the International Space Station. Wow. She spent more days in space than any American astronaut of any gender. And wait for this, the woman who had to try for 10 years to get accepted to be an astronaut became NASA's chief astronaut. Wow. Perseverance. What did she, what was she doing during those 10 years while she was being refused? She was working at NASA, right? NASA, there's a, she was a biochemist. There's a lot of, a lot of roles there. Mm -hmm. And she was learning everything she could about NASA and every role. And she actually said that those 10 years and everything she learned during those 10 years is what made her such an exceptional astronaut and a great leader. Nice. If you could tell teachers who are listening one thing that they could shift today in their classroom to help their students tap into their potential, what, what, would, what would that practice be? I would say pay attention to what they are doing pay close attention to what they are doing when they're not in formal instruction. Hmm. Are they reading in the corner? What are they reading? Are they doodling? What are they doodling? Are they playing with something in particular? What is it that they're playing? And start going down that line of inquiry and see where it takes you. How did you tap into your own passion? How did you discover what your calling, so to speak, was? I couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm. And when I can't stop thinking about something, I have to do a deep dive into it. There's always more to do, always more to learn, always more to write, always more to teach. And I feel that I want to be the type of teacher and professor that I always wanted, but never quite had. 
my goal is to have an impact and leave this world a little better than I found it. The book is The Success Factor by Dr. Ruth Gautian. It releases on January 25th, 2022, and you can find it on pre-sale pretty much anywhere books are found, including Ruth's website, linked in the episode notes. You'll find all kinds of useful information and resources on Ruth's website, including the passion audit and information about her courses, her speaking, and her coaching opportunities. And while you're all fired up about achievement, you'll want to reach out to today's sponsor, Education Galaxy. Deborah Sloan from Carr Creek Elementary in Knott County, Kentucky said, 100% of my fifth grade students improved in all areas of math. Education Galaxy taught my students to work more independently and gave them much needed confidence. I love this program. And Wendy Flack from Dubois Elementary in Springfield, Illinois said, Students not only enjoyed using the program, they were also very excited when they experienced significant gains in their scores. If you have a resource or topic you'd like to share with our listeners, reach out to us at edcuration.com. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Ed Curation Podcast, where we're reshaping learning. Mm-hmm.